Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the state of the religious right as declining religiosity and the looming 2024 election puts strain on the movement. Sources today include Straight White American Jesus, The Benjamin Dixon Show, The Holy Post, The Muckrake Political Podcast, The Damage Report, and The 538 Politics Podcast, with additional members-only clips from Wisecrack and Sarah Martin. So in 1979, the, the historian Rick Perlstein points out that Robertson said this, We have enough votes to run the country. When people say we've had enough, we're going to take over. So this is right in the Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan uh, horse race, presidential race. This is right in the time when the moral majority is gaining its theme. But you see the Christian nationalism, Dan. We're going to take over. We have enough votes to run the country. Okay. Now, what happens over the next couple of years is Robertson and the religious right grow increasingly frustrated with Reagan, the man they'd worked so hard to get into the White House. So by 1988, Robertson launches his own bid for the presidency. And he he talks about this Christian coalition and this idea that we don't need Ronald Reagan. One of us could be president. We could be the one sitting in the Oval Office, not, not them. Now, that doesn't work out. But nonetheless, uh, he continues on and some, with something that he'd been doing in the 1970s, all the way through the 1980s, and all the way really until his death yesterday with uh, a short retirement there. And that is the Christian Broadcasting Network. So we have one thing in place already, the Christian nationalism and the desire to take over. The Christian Broadcasting Network is sometimes a joke today. People make fun of it. People make fun of the 700 Club, whatever. But y'all, this was revolutionary. The Christian Broadcasting Network provided a uh, we talk about media silos. In the 1970s and 1980s, the Christian Broadcasting Network provided conservative evangelicals and Catholics a place to go to get all of their media without having to listen to anything secular. I mean, there are people who will write into us and say, yeah, I wasn't allowed to watch anything but CBN and maybe a few other like religious videos or content. So what it provides is this standalone bubble. This is before Fox News. This is before Newsmax. This is before YouTube and, and the Ben Shapiro's and the, and the, the Charlie Kirk's. It provides the model, Dan, that says, look, engulf people's lives so thoroughly that they only get information and truth and fact from you. And that's what he did. That's what he provided. So we have the Christian nationalism. We also have the media. Okay. He also did something that I think is important to point out. He's a Southern Baptist, Dan, but unlike Falwell, unlike Billy Graham, he was really into healing and he was really into spiritual warfare, right? Pat Robertson is really before his time in some sense in the regard that he's always talking about supernatural things happening. He's praying for these right miracles. He's predicting the rapture. He's talking about spiritual warfare and demons. This is much more in line with the prosperity gospel folks, the Jim Bakers, than it is with that old guard kind of religious right Southern Baptist mainstay. But Dan, what dominates Christian nationalism today? Well, spiritual warfare, the new apostolic reformation, Sean Foyt, Lance Wall now talking about counties that are demon possessed. In many ways, the spiritual warfare mindset the apocalyptic expectation of Pat Robertson is the world we live in now. Okay. 
And so Christian nationalism, a media bubble that he creates, the spiritual warfare motifs, and what else? I'm going to give you one more, and that is a thoroughgoing hatred toward gay people, toward feminists, and towards many other minoritized groups. Our friend Chrissy Stroop chronicled some of these. Before I get into them, I just want to say all of the attacks that we're seeing now on trans people, on queer folks. I mean, I got an email today that broke my heart from my hometown about somebody being slandered for uh, being open about their support of pride, that calling people pedophiles, calling people, you know, groomers. Pat Robertson was on that, folks, from the 80s and the 90s, and he never stopped. Okay. The thoroughgoing hatred of gay folks, of trans folks, of queer folks, a lot of this can be traced in some way to Pat Robertson. Okay. So let me give you some of his best hits. And these are coming from Chrissy Stroop, Dan, and then I'll throw it to you. Robertson in 1998 uh, said this about Orlando's Pride Festival. I would warn Orlando that you're right in the way of some serious hurricanes, and I don't think I'd be waving those flag in God's face if I were you. Okay. After September 11th, famously, Jerry Falwell came on the 700 Club, and Falwell said that 9-11 was the blame of secularists, humanists, abortionists, gay folks, lesbian folks, and so on, and uh, Robertson agreed. Okay. He His words exactly were, I totally concur. Uh, he made homophobic insu- insinuations about judges and their clerks. He talked about and agreed with the idea that homosexual people, that gay folks are preoccupied with sex and said things of that nature. Okay. He was also deeply Islamophobic. He claimed that Islam is not a religion. It's a, it's a worldview or a political system. He, he says that, uh, Islam is a violent and a political system. It's a violent political system bent on the overthrow of governments of the world and world domination. Okay. He, uh, what else did he do? Sorry. There's a lot here on my list. Here's his uh, definition of feminism. The feminist agenda is not about equal rights for women. It is about a socialist anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. So, Dan, feminism, not about equal rights. And it's about a lot more than I thought. I mean, this is not just about, hey, maybe get rid of that mediocre husband of yours over there and free yourself from patriarchy. This is about killing children, practicing witchcraft, destroying capitalism, and becoming lesbians. So, all righty. He called non-Christians termites who don't belong in government. And he said that those who are Christian are qualified to lead and those who aren't should not be in the government. I could go on and on. He talked about gay men deliberately spreading HIV using rings that cut people. He also said that uh, Haiti had a deal with the devil and that after the 2010 earthquake, it was the reason for that was a curse tied to the malevolent spiritual forces that were present in that region. Here's the point, Dan, is some of that just is so laughable and ridiculous, but it's so, so, so hateful. And it's easy to to say, Pat Robertson, you are irrelevant by the time you died. Maybe that's true. But I'm telling you right now, folks, you don't have the climate we live in now with the spiritual warfare, the labeling of people demons, the transphobia, the queerphobia, and so on and so forth without Pat Robertson. And so uh, thoughts on this one, Dan? Yeah, so (laughs) 
I, I agree with everything that you just said. I concur with now with what Robertson said. No, so like if, if people were to to look at, I know you've talked about this. Um, a lot of good resources talk about this, but if people look at the emergence of evangelicalism, like after World War II, right when it you had fundamentalists who'd culturally withdrawn, and you had this younger generation of at the time they were called neo-evangelicals who wanted to re-engage culture and so forth, and that's the roots of like contemporary evangelicalism. One of the defining features of it was they used popular media. They used mass media. It was radio. It was pamphlets. They started their own publishing houses. They did these kinds of things. And they laid the groundwork for what emerges as an evangelical subculture where it is possible to exist completely within that subculture, as a sociologist might say, from cradle to grave, and never have to engage with secular, quote unquote, secular culture at all. You can go to Christian schools. You can read Christian books. You can listen to Christian music. You can what? You can watch Christian TV. And the 700 Club was pioneering in that. And I remember I grew up in a place where, you know, I'd go to certain friends' houses and uh, the TV was on during the daytime. And guess what it was? It was the 700 Club, just kind of there in the background, putting out these same ideas, as you say, that are very, very mainstream now. They're just louder in some ways, but they're, they're no, honestly, in my view, no more vitriolic than they were then just in the background. It was just part of the ether that millions of American Christians were hearing. Christian nationalism is on the rise. Again, particularly the conversation, the national discourse Conservatives are trying to insert the phrase, the branding, the identity of Christian nationalism back into the national discourse. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene messed up months ago, almost, I guess, probably a year ago, and said that the entire nation should be a Christian nationalist nation. And that set off the red flags for everyone pushing that word and that phrase back into the dregs of society from which it came. I say this proudly as a Christian Christian nationalism is the religion of white supremacy. It is exactly how you had everything that happened to black people in this country, whether it be slavery or Jim Crow. The reality that these individuals, Christian nationalists, were the people that black people had to fight against to get every single liberty that we have in this country. In fact, every person under the sound of my voice who enjoys a freedom that is not a straight white Christian man you literally had to fight against Christian nationalists to get that freedom. I want to go one step further. The very people who are promoting Christian nationalism today, they are in some cases the biological descendants, but in every case, the philosophical descendant of the very people who would lynch us black folks on Sunday morning before, during or after their church services, doing it in the name of the Lord. So let's be clear, the legacy and the purpose of Christian nationalism is a far right wing extremist white supremacist ideology that seeks to gain political power and gets to hide underneath the very gentle appeal of a Hillsong styled worship service where they'll cry out to the Lord, 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 we love you and simultaneously do their very best. To make sure that your rights are not only infringed upon, but that they get enough political power to punish you with the force of law 
If they don't approve of your lifestyle, that is what Christian nationalism is. And that's what's on the rise in this country. I generally use the phrase theocratic fascism because Christian nationalism is a form of theocratic fascism. I want to play a clip for you of one praise leader, or I guess maybe he's a preacher, Stephen Fook. I can't pronounce his last name. Immaterial. What's material is what he says. The agenda of Christian nationalists is to gain political power to dominate not only the United States of America, but the world. And I'm sounding the alarm as hard as I can as a Christian, as a man of faith. Because we need to clearly understand that not only is Christian nationalism a threat to every single person who doesn't want to live their life as a Christian. Which is your your right, your your freedom, every person who who does not want to conform to the rules and the mandates of Christian nationalism or Christianity, generally speaking. But it's a threat to all of us, even those of us who are Christians. It's especially a threat to black Christians, because as I have stated already, black Christians had to fight like hell, pun intended, against these white nationalist Christian devils to get every single freedom that we have. And now we find ourselves back at a stage of American history where the very vultures and culprits, the very insidious ideology that was the bane of our existence that we had to fight against to get every single liberty, it's all the rave now. Why? Because we are living in the renaissance of white supremacy, the resurgence of white Christian nationalism. It's all the rave because they understand the way they can maintain political power is by using religion as a bludgeoning tool because you can always cut on that bigoted gene that's inside of, quite frankly, every single one of us if we're not careful But white Christian nationalists in particular understand the masterful art of using religion to incite violence as well as to gain political power. Listen to this this clip as they make it clear their goal is to dominate society for and with and through Christian nationalism. It's all part of the king coming back. That's what we're practicing for. That's why the That's why hell hates it that we're worshiping at every capital across America. That's why we get called. Well, you're Christian nationalists. You want, you want the kingdom to be the government. Yes. You want God to come and overtake the government. Yes. You want Christians to be the only ones. Yes, we do. (laughs) We wouldn't be a disciple of Jesus if we didn't believe that. We want God to be in control of everything. (laughs) We want believers to be the ones writing the laws. Yes, guilty as charged. I mean, it's funny when I meet Christians where I'm like, I don't really, I'm not really, I'm like, have you read the Great Commission? Like, this is actually what we want. (laughs) Guilty. Now, he's clearly misrepresenting the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all nations and preach the gospel. It didn't say Go ye therefore in all nations and overthrow democracy for the sake of your political ideology that you merely wrap in the veneer of Christianity. Your real ideology is Christian nationalism, theocratic fascism, authoritarianism. Okay, the Bible never told us to go. See, this is this is not too far removed from George W. Bush spreading democracy with with our military. 
right? The the desire to go and overthrow. It, this is not too far removed from the Crusades, the Inquisitions. The, this is, again, they are in lockstep. The philosophical ideology has been passed down pure. It's pure. The only difference is it's a lot easier for them to get away with it now because they do it before and during and after a nice praise and worship song that a lot of Christians and even black Christians fall for. But at the end of the day, it is a political agenda that is designed specifically to obtain and maintain political and economic power, period, full stop. That's what they want. It is power for the sake of power. For so many of them, they don't really honestly and earnestly care. See, these these evangelicals, these white evangelicals who have gotten in bed with the Republican Party machine. Now, they they genuinely believe their delusions that they are serving the true and living God by and through their hatred and their desire to dominate society and their desire to make sure that anyone who's gay, lesbian or transgender, that you go and hide in the closets or that you go and be forced to transition uh, uh, conversion therapy. This, this is what they genuinely believe, but not the political party that they're aligned with. The political party that they align with, they don't they don't care what you believe. The Republican Party doesn't give a damn about whether or not you genuinely believe in Christ. Right. They want power. And then, of course, the rich, the oligarchs that are behind all of it, they certainly they certainly don't even probably consider themselves to be Christian, but they understand how to leverage the language of Christianity and how to weaponize the boots on the ground that are all of these zealotrous religious fanatics who cannot live in a society. They just simply cannot live in a society where someone that they disapprove of has as many rights as they have. That to them is hell on earth. And they want now to bring their version, their specific interpretation of Christianity that has not been healthy for anyone except for rich white men. I mean, it's not even healthy for the white women who push it and promote it. It's certainly not healthy for their white children who have to endure it and grow up through it. But it is certainly effective at replicating itself from generation to generation an ideology, a religion based and rooted in white supremacy that is laundered through society, through the innocuous sounds of Hillsong styled praise and worship. But when they get done singing their melodious songs, they are spreading an ideology of hate, a political agenda of hate, all wrapped in the veneer of Christianity. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. There's an interview on Newsmax, Far Right Network, hosted um, by, uh, it was a conversation about Tucker Carlson with Tony Perkins. If you don't know who Tony Perkins is, he's the president of the Family Research Council. He uh, launched that with James Dobson as a part of, as kind of focus on the family's political outreach group. So this is very, very early on an influential religious right organization. And it then became independent focus on family. And he's been running it ever since. So it's like, I don't know, 30 years he's been running this organization. So he was, inter- he is also the guy, he was also the guy that when asked, representing conservative Christianity, when asked, doesn't Jesus say we need to turn the other cheek um, as opposed to being a fighter like Donald Trump? And Tony Perkins said, we only have two cheeks. That was 
is quote. So at some point, Christians have to stop doing what Jesus asked us to do and start swinging. A deep theological insight, and I'm sure very much what Jesus intended. Profound, profound. And as this mm-hmm. week's news of the butt, we would like to inform Tony Perkins that, no, we have four cheeks, Tony, four <laughs> cheeks, so you can forgive your enemies at least two more times before you go nuclear. Uh, Tucker Carlson, according to Tony Perkins, um, he disagreed with Fox News' decision to fire Carlson and also went on to attack Fox's decision to fire Bill O'Reilly who said this was evidence that Fox was turning its back on its conservative viewers, including its Christian conservative viewers. What he failed to discuss at all, as David French brings up, was any mention of the profound moral failings that cost O'Reilly his job and required the Fox network to settle various sexual harassment lawsuits for a, a a total of $45 million, or any mention of Carlson's own serious problems, including his serial dishonesty, his vile racism, and his gross personal insult directed at senior Fox executives. Uh, Lance Wall now, our buddy, the freelance prophet, continued that Tucker Carlson was a casualty of war with the left, a serious setback for Christian Republicans. Uh, Wall now continued to say Carlson was a secular prophet, somebody used by God who was more powerful than a lot of preachers. So, um, what, what French is pointing out that these temptations, including the will to power and the quest for vengeance that plagued Christians in the past, where we saw things like, oh, I don't know, crusades and witch trials and inquisitions, like whenever Christians got a lot of power, suddenly it can kind of warp your morality on what you want to do to keep power, that we're seeing those same things play out today. Um, and that more and more the Christian right, it seems to be latching onto cruel men. And French said the moral, the more the Christian right latches onto cruel men, the more difficult it becomes to argue that the cruelty is a bug, not a feature. Uh, the great tragedy in that in that moment of dangerous national polarization is exactly what a t- truly Christian message that would help that combines a pursuit of justice with kindness and humility, which would be a balm to the national soul. And instead, uh, Christians on the right are jumping into the cruel stuff. And then this was, I think, the best uh, quote that I grabbed from, from French's article. He says, this is how the religious right becomes post-Christian. Its secular prophets become even more influential than its Christian leaders, and it actively discards clear biblical commands for what it perceives to be the greater good, quote, unquote. So that's the part I wanted to latch onto also, Phil, because if- David French seems to be saying this is what will lead the Christian right to becoming post-Christian. And I want to go like, well, what makes them Christian now? Like, aren't they already post-Christian? I mean, I don't, when you've abandoned the central teachings of Jesus, it sounds like there ain't a whole lot there. They're in danger of leaving Christianity. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm getting kind of annoyed throughout the media as I keep hearing religious right or Christian right, or I'm like, or even evangelical. I'm like, there's nothing Christian about this. This is anti-conservative Christianity. This is anti-religious right. This is fear of evangelicalism, as I've called it in times past. Like This is not Christianity. It has nothing in, in resemblance to Jesus. So, I think that ship has sailed. Yeah. In a sense, it's old news. I mean, we were saying this, you know, I don't know, five years ago or more. 
Um, yeah, it's it's. I think the um, what he brings up, although he's writing to the New York Times reader, which obviously hasn't been listening to the Holy Post for twelve years to hear us talk about this over and over again. But I think the point that he brings up, which is, and maybe maybe Trump is really the symbol of this, but we also see it in Tucker Carlson is the elevation of um, secular, cruel men over. Christian thoughtful voices, you know, that, that we don't, we don't have patience for Max Lucado because he's too kindly. We want Donald Trump. But, but that's exactly the point is we don't, I shouldn't say we, they don't want Jesus. What they want is power. What they want is a sense of safety over the fears they have over their demonic enemies, the Democrats and whoever will provide them that power and that control over their environment and the country, whatever, that's what they'll bend the knee to. They don't want Jesus. That's why they reject the leadership that looks like Jesus. They want a bully, and they will embrace and celebrate those who are bullies. Newsflash, this was like that in 1980. This, This was like this during the Civil War. Like, we as Christians want power because we feel like, you know, we want to change the world, make it the way we view it should be, you know, through Christian eyes. And it just seems to be getting worse, but I don't necessarily know that it is. We seem to be getting post-Christian, but I don't necessarily know that it is. Yeah. I mean, look, think back to the Crusades. This is kind of the same story, five millionth verse. Yeah, but we're America. We're better than that. We we left Europe because of all the nuttiness when you have state churches. That's why we left Europe to come here so we could practice uh, so our religion. So we want a state church so we could get yeah, our religion. Us, some of us definitely I think what's do. I, I think what's different. Your point's a really good one, Christian. The difference is when I look back at Ronald Reagan or even George W. Bush, like the the two most recent Republican presidents who actually won a majority of the vote. Um, they. they clearly we're communicating to their conservative Christian constituents that if you elect me, you'll have power. You will have domination over the courts and the government and the society and the culture and all that. They they were saying that, but they were also saying it in a really kind, winsome way, right? There was a compassionate conservatism is what W always used to say. And Reagan had that charming, you know, Gipper-esque kind of thing. And that facade is now gone. And well, it's it, they, it, it, uh, it could be argued they were wolves in sheep's clothing. That's why I'm saying it's a facade, right? It was at least you keep up the pretenses of civility and kindness and soft-spokenness and kindness and goodness and all this. Whether it was genuine or not, I'm not here to judge. But what's clearly gone is now we just want yes. the wolf, right? Yes. There's no sheep's clothing at That's all. That's true. We want fangs out, angry, malicious, nasty, stick it to them kind of rhetoric, whether from our talking heads on cable news or in our political offices. That's what I think's changed. It's that we're just we don't care anymore about the duplicity. Yeah. It's just out in the open. My social feeds lit up as everybody and their grandmother sent me a link to uh, this uh, footage from a rally in Youngstown, Ohio, where uh, Donald Trump was was in town to support J.D. Vance, who, by the way, Nick, one of the worst senatorial candidates 
uh, ever. Just a sinking stone that uh, does us all a favor by sort of disappearing. Uh, but this this clip that we're getting ready to listen to, um, see if you can figure out at home <laughs> what's what's occurring here and where we might be going. But now we are a nation in decline. We are a failing nation. We are a nation that has the highest inflation in 50 years and where the stock market finished the worst first half of the year since 1872. Likewise, we are a nation that has the highest energy costs in its history. We are no longer energy independent or energy dominant as we were just two short years ago. We are a nation that is begging Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, and many others for oil. Please, please, please help us, Joe Biden says. Yet we have more liquid gold right under our feet than any other country. We are a nation that is consumed by the radical left's Green New Deal. Yet everyone knows that the Green New Deal will lead to our destruction. It will just lay waste to the entire country, Nick, if the Green New Deal, which isn't even on the legislative agenda, it would just absolutely destroy the country. Buildings crumbling in front of us. Uh, just yes. cats, dogs living together, mass hysteria. Nick, I, I, I know my background, and I want to go ahead and give people insight into what happened here and how bizarre this is. Um, what was your first reaction when you saw this? Um, icky, ickiness, um, uncomfortable. Um, you know, I'm not a Catholic, I'm not Christian, but I did go to church once when I was, uh, you know, six with my best friend who took me after I slept over at his house. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, it's weird. It's not quite like Damien going to the church in Omen One. Um, but it was, it's just very, very un- strange. And like, but you could, the music was very effective and it's, uh, it's without question completely referencing, uh, your, your typical, religious thing right they have music now right and they pump it in like that in these evangelical places yeah so immediately i was taken back to many a church service uh in which i was emotionally manipulated uh by charismatic preachers um this is an old old trick uh of evangelist and televangelist like to pipe in dramatic music this is in the very very and we'll talk about the origins of the song in a second but this is very specifically targeting the idea that trump is somehow or another an evangelical divine agent whether he's a preacher a prophet you name it um, Nick, we, we, we saw a bunch of people who still don't understand exactly what Christian nationalism is and what its roots are. They didn't grow up in evangelical circles that I did. They started talking about this being a fascist salute as the people put their hands up in the air. No, this was worship. This was this was uh, literally worshiping and feeling the quote unquote spirit of the divine entering them. Uh, it is. It, it hit every chord of the framework of, of that underlying programming that evangelicals have. It, it was as obvious as the day is long. Well, let's just, you know, for the people listening, make sure they understand exactly what this looked like. Because not everybody, but a lot of the crowd in this rally, we'll have to talk about another rally later, but uh, had their hands up at a 45 degree angle with a finger pointing straight up. And I'm assuming that is America first. 
uh, is sort of what uh, it's they're America for. first, but also appealing to the to the divine spirit, to right. the Holy Ghost, if you will. Like you know that a real good finger point, just like you do to your buddy after a, he makes a basket, right? You got to but you point it to God for him, uh, give him credit. So, uh, but but there is no mistaking, even still. And by the way, you'd ask anybody doing that symbol, and and they're not going to even entertain the notion that it has any kind of fascistic, uh, you know. Uh, symbolism to it but but it, it's without question it's 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 frightening yeah and 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 to make this uh very very obvious point that isn't so obvious to american audience sometimes um the the, the fascistic underpinnings of those movements whether it's fascism whether it's nazism they were built on christian worship in italy it was the catholic church in germany it was the the christian church and and what these authoritarian movements always do is they find a way to jack themselves into the religious movement in order to uh to gain power and purchase among the masses this right here and the reason it felt so icky Nick, is because you saw this and you recognize there's a weird power happening here. There's a weird community here. There's something that is uh, coagulating is what I will say. And and you'll notice that this is a rapturous moment. And it's not like Donald Trump is talking about God. He's not talking about revival. What he's talking about is a political agenda. And you're watching that political agenda and Christianity, particularly Christian nationalism, start to merge on the public stage. Right. And that is that is the fascistic playbook as yep. well, is to create a religious figure out of them who cannot be questioned. Um, I, you know, there's a famous quote uh, I think Groucho Marx originally said, which was, I, I don't want to be a member of any uh, club that would have someone like me as a member. And I I just would feel it just feels when when everybody is that dedicated and that, you know, uh, in, into what is basically turning into a cult. It, it, it just it feels it doesn't feel comfortable to me. Now, perhaps it, hanging out long enough in it and that maybe maybe it's one or two or three rallies. All of a sudden, my arm goes up and I'm pointing this guy, too. Uh, I suppose that's how easy it can happen. And we've seen like, you know, films and documentaries about how these how um you know, people can fall into these things so easily, and this is this is exactly what they're doing. It's really good to see Stephen Miller is now graduated from overuse of alliteration. You know, because clearly Trump is reading the script that he wrote for him, uh, and that's a problem. If they're gonna, if he's gonna get better at the writing part, and then Trump is gonna get a little bit better at the reading part of it, then we're, this is a problem. Well, real fast, that would mean that Donald Trump would have to practice and put effort into something. So I don't I don't know if that's going to happen. I will go ahead and say that power of suggestion, but also the power of like um, pressure from around you, like as a person who grew up in these circles, Nick, one moment you're sitting there watching everybody put their hands up in the air and, and worshiping and witnessing. The next thing you know, you might find yourself uh, speaking in tongues because that's what's expected of you. You're supposed to feel the Holy Spirit into your body and change you. Like That's the type of stuff that I was privy to. That's the type of stuff that other evangelicals who came from those circles were privy to. And I have to tell you that the services back in the 1980s and 1990s, which we're going to talk about with the satanic panic here in a second – they were always focused on political and cultural warfare, right? The idea was you may not have very much. You may not, you may not have much going on in your life. In fact, God is probably testing you, right, like, like job. But the one thing that you can do, Nick, is you can take that suffering. You can go ahead and live through that suffering. And the best thing that you could possibly ever do is be a warrior 
in God's war. And you'll notice this is, again, this is, uh, you, you brought up the idea of the cult. This Christian mindset, this evangelical right mindset, many people have come along and used it. And I'm not just talking about televangelists and, and, and Christian leaders, charlatans left and right, con men left and right. It was waiting on someone like Donald Trump to come along and focus it. And I got to tell you, man, Donald Trump, as as his legal troubles get worse and as the Republican Party sort of pushes him out, he's finding himself in a narrowing circle. And I don't know how many documentaries you've seen about your Jim Joneses or anybody like that. When the when 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 the fuzz starts calling and when the pressures start growing and the cult starts to shrink, it actually grows more radical. There have been a lot of Republicans through the years, you know, who've said they would do things. But when it really gets tough, you know, are you able to stand your ground and do it? You know, right to life. We were able to deliver the heartbeat bill, which was a big, big deal. And, you know, while I appreciate what the former president has done in a variety of realms, he opposes that bill. He said it was, quote, harsh to protect an unborn child when there's a detectable heartbeat. So there's a lot that's dishonest there about what the heartbeat bill is, what it actually represents at six weeks, the electro, you know, the the signal that is detected and called a heartbeat by the right, whatever. That that's all we've we've covered that before. But what is true there is that Donald Trump is not necessarily as rabidly extreme on the topic of abortion as people like Ron DeSantis. He's still way outside of the mainstream compared to the American people, Donald Trump. But Ron DeSantis potentially has an in to attack Trump on this, and he's going to use it. He was already criticizing him there. There's going to be a follow-up question from the other dude. The dude, by the way, is part of the Christian Broadcasting Network. So Ron DeSantis knows who he's talking to here. And here's how he responds to the follow-up. Mentioned abortion. Do you feel the former president's going soft then on abortion a little bit, especially in this area that you mentioned earlier? Well, I, well, I think so. I mean, I was really surprised because he's a Florida resident, and I thought he would he would compliment the fact you know that we were able to do the heartbeat bill, which I pro-lifers have wanted for a long time. He never complimented, never said anything about it. Then he was asked about it, and he said it was quote harsh. But you know, these are these are ch children with detectable heartbeats, and I think to do that was very humane, and I think it was something that that every pro-lifer uh, appreciates uh, that we were able to get that done. I, I'm sure some people who would call themselves pro-lifers probably do appreciate that. Of course, it does not have majority support. He knows that. And this is an interesting gamble. I think that this is the sort of area where Ron DeSantis has to try to make a policy-based play against Ron DeSantis. But it's also, it's a little bit dangerous because I don't think that Donald Trump is or isn't in favor of you know a heartbeat bill or whatever. I don't think he cares really at all. I think the reason he wants to back off a little bit rhetorically is because he can read the room and he knows that running as rabid anti-abortion zealots is not a winning strategy electorally. But Ron DeSantis, to be able to run the general election, has to get through Trump first. So he might have to pitch himself as more of a zealot on that topic to take out Trump, even if that would injure his chances of potentially making it past Biden or whoever afterward. Uh, Ron DeSantis is like a rat in a maze who like is running fast, but going toward a dead end in every every move he makes. Like. He thinks this is a, such a winning argument. The moment he's on stage with Donald Trump, Donald Trump will say, what are you talking about? Because of my moves in the Supreme Court, 
we overturn Roe versus Wade. And and DeSantis also has this thing where he's like, oh my God, Florida resident Donald Trump is one of my babies who lives in my state. It's like he bought Mar-a-Lago in 1985 and has used the mansion as a residence since before 1994. And do you think that he cares who the governor of that state is? Mm-hmm. He doesn't care. He just moved to Florida because that's what you do because of the weather and he didn't like New York, which turned on him because he's a piece of crap and everybody else hated him. He was always a pariah. He was never really like embraced by the people Donald Trump thought he was like a representative of. Yeah. He just moved to Florida. That's it. And you're and he's talking about like the tax code in Florida, like it's all Ron DeSantis. No, it's been that way a minute, dork. Hundred percent. Yeah. Look, I guess I I wanted to give Ron DeSantis some credit in that he has at least found a potential avenue of attack. But but I agree. Like, it's going to be difficult. I just can't wait for them to be on the debate stage. And it pains me every time that I think that it is likely that I will be on leave the first time that it's going to happen. <laughs> just know, yeah. I'm gonna make a live video. The things tap like if you're looking at what normally happens during a debate, just seeing two people on stage, the margin tightens. Undeniably, that's why most people try to dodge debates. Usually they tighten unless someone completely face plants. Just having a debate when you're gauging expectations, which is mostly the game here, it's gonna tighten when, they, when they're next to each other on stage. How significant is religious identification for determining political behavior? That's obviously incredibly complicated, right? Because religion interacts with race, which interacts with age, which interacts with rural versus urban. What we do know is that there's identifiable patterns in the American electorate when it comes to religion. In some ways, what we're seeing is political polarization is sort of leaked into religious polarization. And on one side, we've got what my book's about, the nuns, which are growing rapidly, but also are becoming a more and more central part of the Democratic Party. The coalition that votes for Democrats is becoming a bigger share of nuns every single year. And on the other side, we've got Christians, especially white Christians, are a core part of the Republican Party. Here's a couple stats. In 2018, 51% of Americans identified as white and Christian. It was 75% of Republicans are white and Christian, and 38% of Democrats are white and Christian. So what we're really seeing is we're seeing sort of this religious divide leak into the political divide. Now, which one caused the other, obviously, is almost impossible to figure out. But it does seem like in America, more and more people are coming to understand to be religious, especially to be white and religious, is to be a conservative or Republican, and to be religiously unaffiliated is to be a Democrat and a liberal. Yeah, Perry, you and Ryan recently wrote about this for the website, and you spent a lot of time looking at surveys and talking to Americans. How do you conceptualize the role that religion plays in how Americans view politics in the world? I think Ryan said about a lot of what's happening. The key thing I would say is black religious people tend to be very democratic. So the one thing that's very distinct is, as he said, among white people that tends to be more religiosity tends to go along with more conservatism. Among African Americans, that's not the same pattern. Latino patterns are a little bit more complicated. So I want to defer to Ryan. Talk about Latinos a little bit in those patterns. Yeah, so Latino Protestants in 2020 were 50-50, like literally split right down the middle. But Latino Catholics are a whole different story. They were two to one 
for Joe Biden in 2020, which tells you, you know, for them, the type of Christian you are actually matters a lot because American Protestantism has sort of become synonymous with American evangelicalism, which is becoming more and more conservative as every year passes. But a lot of Hispanic Catholics come from a tradition that's more about liberation theology. Let's say it has its roots in Central and South America, where the church is socialist in some ways and radical in some ways to the left. And so those ideas sort of come into the American ethos, especially in predominantly Hispanic Catholic churches. So what we're seeing really is we're seeing a divide even amongst the Hispanic community between Protestants who are 50-50, but if you look at just Hispanic evangelicals, they're about 65-35 or so with some third-party voting in there. But overall, what we're seeing is the Catholic vote, Hispanic vote is going to the left. But we're also seeing the Hispanic evangelical vote going to the right. So that's really an interesting community that's sort of fracturing, I think. But Perry's right about black Protestants. I think one of the most interesting problems facing the modern Democratic Party is that it's becoming a larger and larger the nuns, especially atheists and agnostics who are incredibly liberal, incredibly far to the left. But at the other side, one of the cores of the Democratic Party is black Protestants who a majority of them do not favor same-sex marriage and are not in favor of a lot of pro-choice programs. So how do you hold a coalition together when you have very far left nuns, but you also have a lot of pretty conservative black Protestants at the same time? I think that's a problem for them going forward. So how would you describe the different religious groups in America and perhaps by political identity? Really amongst Christians, you've got your evangelicals who are 80% Republican. They voted 80% for Donald Trump in 2020. But then you've got another group called mainline Protestants. And Perry and I wrote about this in the piece, which I think they're such an interesting group because they are like the United Methodist Church, the Episcopalians, United Church of Christ. They're the kind of church that used to be the largest church in America. In the 1970s, 30% of all Americans were mainline Protestant. Today, it's only 10%. So they're a group that traditionally was just slightly right of center, and today they're 50-50. They're literally split in half. Some are Republicans and some are Democrats, but the kind of Republicans they are are not evangelicals. They're more what I call country club Republicans, which means they want low taxes because a lot of them have high educations and high incomes, so they just want the government out of their lives. But they're cool with you smoking weed or you know whoever you want to marry or whatever. However, on economic issues, they want a small government. Now, Catholics are a really interesting story because we just talked about white Catholics are trending to the Republican side while Hispanic Catholics are trending to the other side, yet the Catholic Church in America is becoming more racially diverse. Then you've got a whole bunch of smaller religious traditions like Hindu, Mormon, Buddhist, Muslim, that are actually trending toward the Republicans, but together they don't really make up that big of a share and then, obviously, that we've got the nuns, which is what we just talked about. And the nuns are growing rapidly. They were 22% of the population in 2008, and they're 34% of the population today. Over 40% of millennials and Gen Z identify as religiously unaffiliated, and they're growing rapidly. So that is the growing religious electorate that we need to be thinking about going forward is the nuns. They tend to vote. Atheist agnostics are 75% for the Democrats. The other group, which is really what the book's about, is a group called Nothing in Particular. They are not so liberal. They're actually in the middle of the political spectrum, but they make up 20% of all Americans. They're black, they're white, they're young, they're old. They have a couple things in common, but the big thing they have in common is they have low income and low education. And I think they're actually the swing vote in in the modern religious electorate. And the other groups are pretty much locked in. They're not switching over time. The Nothing in Particular are where the election is going to be won and lost in the future, I think. This is zoning a little bit on what Ryan is getting at, is that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, if you talked about people who were non-religious, we were mostly thinking about white 
educated, liberal people. But now we're talking about the people who say they are not affiliated with a religious denomination is a third of Americans. So that means you're getting beyond just white, youngish liberals in the East Coast. There are more and more black people, particularly younger black people, more Latino people, particularly younger people, older people who are Democrats are moving away from church. So what you're getting is like, once you get to a third of Americans, you're hitting everybody to some extent. And what Ryan's book is really smart about and what I really learned from it is, as he said, is like this no religious block is one third of people. But atheists and agnostics are distinct from people who just say nothing in particular. Atheists and agnostics tend to have very defined views about religion. They sort of don't believe in it. They're a little bit hostile to it. They are skeptical of it. And those people are very educated, more male, very, very democratic. And then this nothing in particular group, which is much bigger. Atheists and agnostics are about 10% of Americans. This nothing in particular is about 20% of Americans. And they're they're more like they don't go to church anymore. Maybe their parents did, but they're not going to say, I'm an atheist. I mean, they, they don't have these strong disbeliefs either. So they're not as educated. They're more racially diverse. One thing we mentioned in the piece was the Black Lives Matter movement is not religious itself, and it didn't come from the black church, but black non-religious people tend not to be atheists and agnostics. So it's black, nothing in particular, is someone who their parents went to church, their mother goes to church. So they're not anti-church, they're not, just not in church themselves, and that's different than an agnostic or an atheist person who might be kind of wary of church itself and kind of wary of religion. We've just heard clips today, starting with Straight White American Jesus discussing the legacy of Pat Robertson. The Benjamin Dixon Show explained Christian nationalists. The Holy Post looked at the evolution of the Christian right. The Muckrake Political Podcast highlighted a campaign speech from Trump last year that exemplifies the attempt to make him a messiah figure. The Damage Report discussed DeSantis's attempt to criticize Trump from the right on abortion, and the 538 Politics podcast looked at the declining religiosity in the U.S. and the potential impacts on politics. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Wisecrack getting more philosophical on the purpose of religion. While some might immediately think of Marx writing that religion is the opium of the people and determine that he thinks religion is dumb, it's important to consider the full quote in context. Right before the opium line, Marx writes, religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. In this sense, religion isn't the problem. It's the conditions that necessitate religion that are the problem. And Sarah Martin gave a talk explaining her journey as one of many people deconstructing their way out of Christianity. Everyone has a unique journey that's taken them from whatever faith they started with to where they are now. And oftentimes, it's not because we chose to go through this. It's just because what we believed stopped aligning with what we were experiencing and what our reality turned out to be. 
To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Now, to wrap up today, I just want to clarify that although there may be forces putting a strain on the religious right, as I described at the top of the show, it has evidently not been enough to shake their faith in Trump. On the anniversary of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the Faith and Freedom Coalition held their Road to Majority conference, where Trump was warmly welcomed, and Chris Christie, just as a for instance, who had been mildly critical of Trump, was booed. As we heard in the show today, as the population of a religious group declines, it begins to tend toward extremism. And the primary reason why the evangelical right still supports Trump is because of his combativeness. There's also an appreciation for what they see as accomplishments during his presidency, but politics tends to have a what have you done for me recently kind of mentality. And with Trump, the answer is fight with the left. And that's about it. The way one attendee of the conference who supports Trump put it, quote, the other candidates do not have the melons, let's say it that way, to represent us, to fight for us, to defend us against the machine, end quote. Now, to be clear, most Christians tend to have a persecution complex. It's basically a core tenet of their faith to feel hard done by, by the rest of society. But this still goes a long way toward explaining the enduring support for Trump by those who feel under siege by the secular world. And not just that, But who better to ask to look beyond an ever-growing indictment count than a group of people whose founding theology is based on wrongful persecution? That's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave a voicemail or send us a text message to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and usually funny bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And you can continue the discussion by joining our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com